Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Scotland, the Autobiography, from our 2018 programme. Alexander McCall Smith describes Scotland, the Autobiography, 2,000 Years of Scottish History by Those Who Saw It Happen, as an unqualified triumph. Rosemary Goring's book is composed of eyewitness accounts from Tacitus, Mary Queen of Scots, Oliver Cromwell, Adam Smith, David Livingston, and the Big Yin, a.k.a. Billy Connolly, but also from crofters, criminals, servants, housewives, and poets. Goring is the literary editor of the Herald in Glasgow and the author of two works of historical fiction, After Flodden and Dacre's War. Join her in an hour's examination of her country with Jim Mora in this session, supported by Heartland Bank. Uh, out of interest, how many Scots in the audience born north of the River Tweed today? <laughs> Hello. All right, a bit south of the River Tweed, that's all right. And how many people of Scottish descent? Oh, look at, oh, the, wow. look at the hands. <laughs> look at the hands. Uh, and English? English? Lovely. <laughs> that's good. The Scots, of course, as you probably know, have contributed greatly to New Zealand yes, history. Yes, yes. Which you may have got a sense of in your travels around the country. Yeah. Uh, religion, politics, social welfare, the arts. The Scottish are very, we're going to talk about this, the Scottish are a very bright bunch of folks. Uh, we know it as well. <laughs> <laughs> And um, you've been in the south, haven't you? Yes, um, Christchurch and Dunedin. They also gave us that delightful Southland accent, the rolling R, which I don't know if you heard I'm way not, in the south. I'm not tremendously good on accents, actually. I have actually offended somebody who comes from Leith. I once asked him, are you English? And that was, if you know Leith, you know that's a tremendously big mistake to make. So, so, no, I didn't notice the R's, I'm sorry. I better do a proper introduction. Rosemary Goring, uh, many of you will know, uh, a, a well-known figure in Scotland as a literary editor, and she's still consulting with the Herald and the Sunday Herald, uh, and still writing columns. She studied history at the University of St Andrews, and her much-praised book is Scotland, the Autobiography, 2,000 Years of Scottish History by Those Who Saw It Happen. And if you haven't read it yet, these are eyewitness accounts by both obscure people and the famous. And, of course, Scotland has produced many famous sons and daughters, as we'll find out in the hour. Um, how many have read the book yet? No yeah, some of you have. No pressure. And Thanks how many will buy a copy from Rosemary <laughs> in the foyer? <laughs> that was four. I'm a big advocate. <laughs> I like libraries. I think people should get their books from libraries, personally. I think you stand to make £7.80. <laughs> um, Rosemary's also a novelist. After Flodden was her fictionalised account of the famous uh, English-Scottish battle in 1513 when uh, James IV was killed, the King of the Scots. And that remains the biggest ever Scottish invasion of England, right up to the World Cup qualifier in 2016. <laughs> And her follow-up novel was Dacre's War, also very well-reviewed, an exciting saga of political intrigue on the Scottish border in the time of Henry VIII, because you love that border country. I love that border country. I live right in the heart of it now. I finally got there. We moved just before Christmas. There's a lot of stories about that, but they're not relevant to the book, sadly. But there's something about the Scottish borders. I don't know... Well, a lot of you will know, will know them, but they're just full of history. But even more interestingly, the countryside is just sensational. You know, it, you can tell that there's history there, and there's, there's moorlands, there's hills, there's rivers, 
Um, and also the border people are very distinctive. They're very, they're, in a way, New Zealanders strike me as like the border people. They're very direct, very friendly, um, very unpretentious. So I don't know how I fit it in, but I hope I do. <laughs> You're saying just the right things. <laughs> but I'm going to put you on the spot because yes. you've seen a bit of New Zealand now. Can Scotland really be any more beautiful than New Zealand? Gosh, gosh. Well, I have to say, because um, my husband, we were given a little tour around Dunedin by the CEO of Heartland Bank, I think, the, who sponsored this event. Um, and my husband just immediately said, this is more beautiful than the borders. This is more beautiful than Scotland. And I was thinking, is it? And then I looked, <laughs> I looked again and I thought, oh, it's absolutely sensational. Because what you have is also the light. You know, the colour of the, the sea, wherever you see it here, is it just it's luminous and we only really get that in the west coast um when it stops raining <laughs> <laughs> look some general questions first or you may think them generalizations why have the english always fought the scots because there is such obvious kinship and yet you have traditionally always seemed to rub each other up the wrong way I think some of it um, is dynastic because there's been the struggle over whether um, a Scottish king or queen will actually have a right to the English throne. Yeah. And that's, that's been the basis of quite a lot of things. There was a worry about, you mentioned James IV and Flodden. Well, he, he actually had a claim to the English throne and Henry VIII wanted none of this. And the same again with Mary, Queen of Scots. You know, she was a serious contender for the throne and so she was done away with. But I also think it's a, it's a bit like the elephant with the mouse, and the mouse is always the one that's really irritating with the sharp teeth, you know. And Scotland, um, and we s I still see that in our personality today. We we don't like being patronised, and we've we've had um, particularly once the countries were unified, first of all under the Union of Crowns, and then with the Union of of Parliaments, uh, it has felt as if governance has always come from London. And London feels very, very far away if you live in Scotland, if you live in the, the far north, even if you live where I live, right near the English border. And it was always a sense that they, they knew what was best for Scotland when, of course, we felt that they didn't. And we can talk in a minute, perhaps, about the contemporary resonances of this. Yeah, well. But also, the English are really um, have been terribly aggressive, and the Scots are very peaceable nation, you know, it's just, you know, they just provoked us, just went a little too far. Too often. I want to ask you about that because as Scottish history, I think our perception of it is often brutal. Any more brutal than English, Welsh, Irish, do you think? Ah, well, that's a really good question. Probably more brutal um, per square acre, actually. I think so. There's a part of Scotland where I was brought up, I come from Dunbar, where a very famous battle of Dunbar where Cromwell Yet again, the English trounce the Scots. Um, but per square mile in East Lothian, there are more battles. There have been more big battles than anywhere in Britain. So, and that's a beautiful part of Scotland, by the way. It's not, you know, it's, it's a place where it was worth fighting over, I suppose, and also where it's very easy for big armies to meet each other. That's a horrifying statistic. Yeah, it is. You know, to, to realise that. And some of that's in Turnison. It's not imposed by the English, you know, historically. So why? There's a lot of clan interests. You see that both with the Highlands, you know, they were very much a clan culture. So, you know, they didn't recognize um, the, the king of the country or the queen as the authority. They, they had their own individual family interests, which is exactly the same as in the borders. 
um, although it was a little less formal in the borders. So it would be one clan against another, and if you step over you know, my, my field, I'll come for you. And there have been, I mean, there have been so many um, conflicts which were completely unnecessary. To read Scottish history would make you weep because we have just, we have killed each other for no good reason other than the fact that we wanted their sheep or they wanted our cattle. And I mean, it's horrible. It's really nasty. We've reformed a lot, but... Uh, the... Um and a, a lot of countries have that in common, or degrees of that, so yes. the Scots aren't alone. Well, that's good the to Financial know. Times review of this book said it was a treasury of a small nation's overachievement. And that's <laughs> at the nub of things with Scotland. I mean, there used to be those hangings, and people in the room would have had them on their toilet doors about how the Scots invented the, you know, the, the telephone and the steam engine and all the You have that for the back of your doors? Well, it was popular in New Zealand once, yeah. I'd love to see that. You know... Yeah. Ashfeld and whatever else the Scots have invented. Yes. Are the Scots the most talented race on earth? Well, without, I mean, what can I say? I mean, it would be immodest to say yes, but, but there's a book that did, you know, not surprisingly very well in Scotland called, um, it was by Arthur Herman, an American historian who obviously understood us very well, and it said, you know, Scotland, you know, who invented the modern world. And on one level, you can laugh, you can, and you're right to laugh. Um, but I think there has been an unusual concentration of highly talented people in yeah. Scotland. And some of that, it doesn't even go back to the individuals, but I think some of that can be, probably be traced to our education. Our, uh, we have had, since the, the Reformation, a, a pretty good education system which drilled girls as well as boys. Um, and also really hammered home the fact that you should never take the weekend off, you should be working. You should never, you know, never go to bed without having achieved something in the day. Uh, and that, that carries on, and I think that kind of work ethic is at the heart of why we've had achievers right across the sciences as well as writers who, you know, you were talking earlier before we came on stage about Alexander McCall Smith. Yeah. Now, a lot of people think that if you're a novelist, you're basically a sort of a, a creative type who just waits until inspiration hits and then you sit down for a few minutes and write and then when the mood cools off, you wait until it comes back again. Alexander McCall Smith gets up at three in the morning, goes back to bed for a couple of hours around about seven and then gets up again and carries on writing. He has written well over 100 books. Um, at one point, he was also professor while he was doing all of this. Now that kind of, in a nutshell, even those who are meant to be allowed to be a bit laid back and a bit, oh, I'll do it tomorrow, actually work incredibly hard. How about you? When did I have a weekend off? I'm trying to think. Um, well, to be really honest, I don't have children, so it's made it um, a lot easier to do nothing but work. You know, this is not a good thing. This is not, not as balanced a life as you should have. Um, but yes, I'm always kind of working, always thinking about work. There's never a weekend where I don't do some. And there's, yeah. You write about the rigorous education of... It's, there are so many fascinating accounts in your book, it goes without saying, but you write about the rigorous education of boys. And I'm wondering, and also we know about Scottish talent, so I'm wondering how much the climate has had to do with that. Yeah. Well, basically there was not much else to do. You couldn't go outdoors for half of the year. As I discovered moving in the winter, the worst winter we've had in about 40 years, I moved to a part of the country where you couldn't move for five days. My husband was stranded in the house. He packed me off to Glasgow because I was finishing another book. I had to be near a library. We were having a new boiler put in, this new house. There was a lot of work to be done. And the people had come in to put, fit the boiler, saw how badly it was snowing, and scarpered 
got out of there as fast as they could. So Alan was left there without any heating, no hot water, and no food, because ah. we were, didn't have a fridge. We didn't need one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a great example of what it's been like in Scotland for centuries. You, you know, you are housebound for a lot of the time, so you turn to your books, you turn to conversation. There's a great tradition in Scotland of sitting around the fire, and maybe listening to the fireside pipes that we just heard there, and talking and thinking and arguing. We are a great nation for arguing. You should just hear me and my husband at breakfast. I mean, he, he's, he's diabolical. Um, <laughs> so, and I think, I think climate has a huge part to play. Because if, if you have great weather, you can't help but go outside and enjoy yourself. Yeah. So it makes me wonder how New Zealanders have achieved so much, given that we have such marvellous weather. But... <laughs> I walked right into that, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a genetic predisposition because you have so many Scots Yeah, that's here. <laughs> right. Very good. So. Um, your book uh, emphasises what a useful thing it is to know history. I won't go through all the examples, but you choose your stories with a very fine eye. One thing that interested me when I came across this passage was that we think we are going through a time of absolutely prodigious change. You know, the world seems just seething with it. And yet, you looked at Edinburgh between 1763 and 1783, and that was a similar time for people of that city, wasn't it? That was an interesting example. What was happening exactly in those years? What happened before 1763, you see, I've read the book very well, uh, was that there were very few... And this, and this happened in 20 years. Very few stagecoaches, haberdashers, perfumers, hairdressers, fancy accommodation, uh, prostitutes, church attendants, all of a sudden completely neglected, women domestically emancipated, general unruliness on the streets, women no longer safe. And I read that, and I thought... God, that's, it's like, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's one of the great things about history is that you realise that you're not unique. You realise that now is just like in the past. That's one of the reasons I've loved it. I'd totally forgotten that so much happened in those 20 years. Yeah. And in fact, at the moment, we're going through exactly these kind of um, convulsions about Edinburgh. We were just talking before we came on that I've described Edinburgh as the Blackpool of the North, which is no compliment um, I'm afraid, don't mean to be horrible to Blackpool, but Blackpool is full of neon lights and you know cheap and gaudy fairground attractions, which is fair enough. But Edinburgh, this neoclassical city, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, um, has started to go down that route as well. You know, to attract tourists who are becoming the 24/7 and the the 12/12 city of tourism and mm. entertainment. Um, and so now we're thinking, well, my goodness, there's far more prostitutes, there's far more shops, you know, people are no longer as safe on the streets. It's nonsense. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic city and it always will be. But I think every generation also, or even every half generation, gets upset because they've slowly got a perspective on things and they remember how it was when they were younger. And gosh, you know, as you get older, that feeling gets worse. And there's a real danger of becoming sour and writing things like, it's the Blackpool of the North. Yeah. But it does happen. And I, you must feel that yourselves. You must, must look at Auckland or Dunedin and think, well, it's not what it used to be. Out of interest, how many people here have been to Scotland? Oh, oh. wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. Heaps. Absolutely fantastic. And do you see it changing? Do you? Do? Yeah. A muted chorus. Uh, I don't want to go through the entire method and inspiration behind the book, which you outline very ably and comprehensively at the start. 
But what did you set out to do with Scotland, the autobiography? I did a history degree um, where it was a social and economic history degree. And you couldn't do that for very long, actually. It lasted for about 10 years at St Andrews. Um, and I think when I was doing that degree, I was very conscious of the history that you never get taught at school. Because history, as famously they say, it's written by the victors. And those victors, in the Scottish sense, are the people in power, the people with authority. And what I really like is finding out what ordinary people, like myself and my family, um, like all of us to a large extent, um, thought and felt and how things affected them. Uh, so that, that really, I wanted to hear it in history in its own voice, uh, which obviously isn't very easy in the early years because you're reading, you know, you're dealing with really serious records which are kept by clerks or chronicles by people who um, are very poetic, um, but not always very accurate. But at least it gives you a slight sort of trace of what was happening. And then as you get into the age where everybody was educated to a certain extent and could actually pass on what they were thinking directly you know, whether it was a factory boy in Dundee who, when he grew up, was able to write a record of what it was like to be dangled out of a window by his ear, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, terrifying, you know, several floors up. Well, it obviously galvanised him into becoming a wealthy, great man who could write his memoir. But those are the kind of books that I was uh, drawing on and wanting just to hear really direct, almost newspaperish history. I mean, I'm a, I'm a journalist by profession. I'm not a historian. And it's always the good story that grabs me and um, the colour and the sentiment. I'm a sentimental Scot. We, a lot of us are. It's not necessarily a good thing, um, but you're looking, for the, you're looking for the emotional heart of a good story. I think it's a very good thing. Do you? And I think part of the brilliance of your book, because, yeah, journalists are always looking for a good story, but <clears throat> media often in the rush, and this has probably always been true, have ignored the ordinary person unless you know, they're doing a survey of public opinion of the budget or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, nowadays, we tend to focus, thankfully, on individual examples of poverty, for example. But you are very intent on the voice of that ordinary person, the women working down the mines, mm -hmm. etc., in absolutely ghastly conditions. Yes. You almost get a tear in your eye when you read it. Do you know, there's the, the, exactly, there's the, the case that, that um, we're talking about here is of... Um, a mining town very near where I grew up in East Lothian, the place that had all the battles. Um, and there was, a, there was a survey done, a commission was um, commissioned to look into child labour. But in the process of doing this commission, uh, they discovered how many children and women and girls were working underneath in collieries, such as the one at Ormiston, where this piece comes from. And what was horrifying, they, they spoke directly to, to the people involved. So they would talk to an eight-year-old girl who would say, I don't like doing this very much. I wish I was above ground playing. They would talk to women who had had to work underground until within minutes of giving birth. I mean, not days, minutes. And then would be back down the mines within, within a day or two. And these harrowing and very stoical accounts. So they were, they were self-pitying only in the sense that they would say, it's sair, sair work doing this, and I would be, you know, I don't like doing it, but I have no option. Mm. But they were also accompanied by um, sketches. And it was actually the sketches rather than the people's voices that began to change legislation. But what I found so horrifying, I mean, it wouldn't matter who was underground. It wouldn't matter if it was a, it was Mike Tyson bringing up the coals and the weight of the coal on their back. But they did say, the, the colliery owner said, the men won't do this work. 
That's why the women and children and the girls have to do it. It's the incredible. men won't do this work. I it's, know, it's too incredible. awful. You know, and you just feel totally choked. And it's not just Scotland. It was all across the world. And there's probably places in the world where this is still going on. You know? The only problem with these accounts, well, there's no problem with them at all, uh -huh. but you do use the phrase, I think, in terms of the perception of Scottish history as a perpetual dirge. Yes. I think that comes from you. Yeah. Uh, it has not helped. I couldn't help thinking it is not helped by your most famous fighting song, which is Scots Wahey. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, welcome to your gory bed or tad victory. And that is a long way from Royal Britannia <laughs> or, the, or the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You know, my eyes have seen the glory. It's kind of like saving our bacon is the best we can hope for and the universe always conspires against us. Yes. There is that aspect to Scottishness, isn't there? Yes, there definitely is. There's a real sense that we've been done down, that if something's going well, it's not going to last. Um, and, you know, you're never allowed to say oh, it looks like it's not going to rain. People say, shh. Say that. We, I have a friend who's no longer with us, but he's a poet, um, and he wrote a very, very famous poem, which he got sick of because it was the only one that ever got recited. But he had, when he was, he ended up living um, in South America and, and America itself because living in Scotland was just too painful for this reason. But once when he was on a trip to Fife, he was, it was a glorious morning. You could hear the, the meadowlarks and, you know, the sun was shining, the sea was glittering as though you were at the Tasman Sea just just here. And he was passing a woman in her headscarf and Alistair said, oh, isn't that a beautiful day? And she kept on walking and she said, we'll pay for it. We'll pay for it. <laughs> 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 and so uh, there is definitely the glass is half empty, not just because we are a very alcoholic race. Um, and I think, I mean, there's an element of truth because we have been massively oppressed like any basically working-class country, mm. you know, basically a working-class nation, and we've had some pretty terrible landowners and royalty. But there's definitely a psychological predisposition, I think, to feel that we're, things are not good. Nevertheless... <sighs> Great uh, word, by the way. Very what? Edinburgh word. What? Nevertheless. Really? Do you know? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I learned a lot when I was there. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't they? We haven't even got to the famous Scots yet, which, of course, we will, because... I'm sure we all want to hear about some of them. Uh, but later this year, you're publishing a book called Scotland, Her Story, which is an exclusively, I presume, female perspective. That's right, yes. Have women's rights in Scotland kept pace with, else, uh, with women's rights elsewhere? Because they seem to. You've got Nicola Sturgeon yeah. right up there in charge yeah. now. Yeah. Uh -huh. Can you tell us about this new book and your thoughts about that? Well, it's interesting because you come to New Zealand and you realise how backward Scotland has been in terms of women's suffrage. And you look at, you, you recently had a book, uh, oh, I've gone to forget her name now, Bar Barbara Brooks? Yeah. Um, a History of New Zealand Women, is that right? Um, fantastic, big, fat book. And you look everywhere you look, you see women's achievements in New Zealand um, right from the start. And, and really celebrated. And there's a sense of equality here, which is really refreshing. Um, I don't think Scotland led the way in any way in this sense. I think we followed, followed the trend. Um, but lately, in terms of politics, we have been really fortunate. And it sort of began, there's a piece in the book um, where the first SNP uh, woman 
uh, is is um, piped on the on the platform at Newcastle Station on our way to take up our MPs post at Westminster, Winnie Ewing, um, and that was a great moment for women and a great political moment because I think it inspired further women politicians and has actually fed into the SNP resurgence. Now we have an SNP government and we have Nicola Sturgeon, an incredibly able first minister. It doesn't really matter what your politics are in Scotland. You have to acknowledge she is a very, very good leader, a bit like here, actually. You know, I hear that your own prime minister, you might not agree with her politically, although I gather lots of people do, but almost everybody seems to have tremendous respect for her. Yeah. No. Of course. And I think in Scotland, I think in politics, women are sort of ahead of the game. It's not the same in medicine or at the top of lots of other you know, in businesses and so on. There's a real gap still in the number of women in top, top jobs. And some of this is clearly um, discriminatory. It's not just the way that they, you know, because people are having families and they're stepping off, off the ladder for a little while. There's definitely not a good enough system yet. We're getting it slowly in place. But I think we're behind the curve rather than at the head of it. In terms of emancipation, I don't think we in New Zealand understand the depth of passion around the whole Scottish independence referendum mm -hmm. um, and everything that's happened well before, long before and since. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an idea of the depth of feeling around that? Yes, it's extremely strong on both sides. Mm. And, and we actually saw that with the referendum um, where it was 2014, September 2014. It was actually a very exciting few months in the run-up to that referendum. There's been a bit of press about how unpleasant some of it was. There was a lot of trolling and so on. But I think that's been a bit exaggerated um, because the general feeling, and I was in Glasgow for a lot of the, of the run-up to the referendum, and Glasgow's a tremendously, um, it, it voted yes yes to independence resoundingly. Yeah. And it was, so in the run-up to, to the referendum, you had um, a vigorous discussion, uh, but in a, in a good way between families, between friends. But what the most exciting bit was that it galvanized young people who had never thought about politics before. Um, and that, that for the country was actually quite revolutionary. And regardless of the outcome of the referendum has been a really good thing because now you have a much more politically aware uh, cohort, you know, from 16 upwards. And before before the referendum, unlike with the unspeakable Brexit referendum, uh, the, the government produced a 500-page white paper so that people could actually see what they were voting for or voting against. Mm. But what's also really interesting, my family is quite a good example because with the exception of me and my brother, all of my family of all generations did not want independence whether it was because they were of an age where the union had meant a lot to them. Ah. Um, my father had fought in the Second World War, uh, so it was Great Britain that mattered. And um, Or my nieces and nephews, who were in their 20s at the time, who I would have thought would be all for a, or a sort of a forward-looking independent Scotland, totally not for it. Partly, I think, because a lot of people were worried about the economic side of it. And this is, I think, where this strong feeling comes in, because you either have those who, like myself, feel it's a question of, it's an ideology, it's an idea. It's not about whether you're £300 better off at the end of the year or not. And then there's the other very level-headed people who are saying, well, the economics have to work before you go into this. And in a way, can one side persuade the other? So the vote, in the end, it was 55% voted against, 45% voted for. And we're now in this very tricky position um, where there's a bit of agitation coming from the strong nationalist wing for another referendum. 
Um, Nicola Sturgeon's in a difficult place because she has a mandate for this, but it doesn't last tremendously much longer, another couple of years before she can, would have to go and get another mandate. And if there's another referendum and it's another vote against independence, that kind of will kill it, I think, yeah. for a long time. And so, although there's very strong feelings on both sides at the moment, we're keeping it under under control, I think, because you don't want the country ripped apart. You want the government to get on with governing. We have a lot of issues, you know, difficult issues in Scotland. Education's yeah. not, you know, doing as well as it should. Health issues. And then we have the Brexit thing looming. But when Brexit is over and done, I think it's going to become very interesting. And I think things are going to bubble up again. And yeah, when Brexit is over and done. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot of process. All right. Um, your book is so full of material, I just want to see if we can whiz through some of it. Okay, Not see if I can remember it all. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, there's so much there. Um, you write about the dreadful Sutherland clearances. You write about, you write about uh, the misery as well as the joy. You write about the lives of the Highlanders and the way it's told in your book. The Highlanders, especially early on, were genuinely the kind of Scottish equivalent of the Spartans, really, for their supposed toughness. Yes, yes, yeah? that's a very good. I've never thought of it like that, actually. And they were and probably continue to be like that. But, you know, they didn't wear many clothes. What they had was often sopping wet. Um, they would r spend a night out on the hill in there just with their plaid wrapped around them. Uh, when they were fighting, for example, at the Battle of Flodden, we keep coming back to it, but it's the only battle I know much about. Um, the Highlanders who fought there um, fought in their bare feet, which for them was actually a very good thing because it was so muddy they could actually extricate themselves, whereas those who were in full armour, it was horrible. It was yeah. like the First World War, really. Mm. Um, and they were tremendously hardy because desperately um, fierce winters and also it was very hard to make a living off the land at that point. And then when you have something like the clearances, people were actually having to live off seaweed and shellfish and live outdoors because their houses had been burned down or they'd been shoved to the margins. Yeah. It's a very stoical and, and very macho culture as well. It's very hard to dismiss historical events like the clearances and um, when you read them you know, so starkly as they are in your book. It's not just some textbook account that takes two paragraphs, it's the nitty gritty. Uh, you dispel some allusions. Um, block your ears, Andrew. Uh, a 1784 bags, bagpipes contest. And the review of the event reads, an unsupportable uproar. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Music critics have never been, you know, up to the mark. But we assume think. the Scots all universally love the pipes. Yeah, well, it's a very good point. And I, by and large, I absolutely adore them. I, I hear a pipe starting and I was saying, you know, I, I get quite tearful. But if you've been walking along Princess Street and you've been shopping for a couple of hours and the piper at the end and it can't quite meet the, the note and, and skips over the difficult bits and, you know, odd lang sign and so on. So there's times when the pipes aren't everything they should be. That's an honest answer. <laughs> um, we're about to get to the really great Scots. Before we do, just to kind of the front of your mind answer, when, if someone was asked who's the greatest New Zealander, I mean, they have different opinions, Pākehā and Māori probably, but I mean, instantly we might think of Sir Evan Hillary. Are there Scots that leap right to the front of your consciousness when I ask you a question like that? The word greatest? Yeah. 
Very difficult, that, I think. Because um, I would say, I might say Mary, Queen of Scots, because it, but uh, in a way she's the most interesting. But I don't know that she was the greatest. You know, what, what did she achieve? Yeah. It's a very, very you know, mixed legacy there. I would think that you know, somebody, you could make a case, because we've not discussed this at all, you could make a case for John Knox, yeah. Because, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To, you know, I'm not personally making Well, he's case, had a big legacy in New Zealand, of yeah. course, as well. Well, exactly. And I mean, he brought Presbyterianism to the, to the country, changed the religious setup, and actually put in train a lot of the things that you were talking about. Why have we done so well? Why have we overachieved? And I think mm. the Reformation is a huge part of that. You know, the religious um, shaping of our consciences basically he he was in charge of our conscience yeah. it's a man i would love to meet but really just to argue with yeah <laughs> yeah because you all you all argue you scots that's the thing <laughs> i never right. realized i was an arguer but my sister tells me i am let's get to a few of them then i mean mary queen of scots whose character i think we still find elusive yes even today yes so what were her principal merits and failings in your view highly educated incredibly um, literary figure, you know, spoke several languages, wrote beautifully, um, and in a way, she, she was beautiful, which is irrelevant. I don't think it really matters in terms of, of a woman, but I think she brought the sort of refinement of the French court to, to Scotland, which, my goodness, it needed refinement in those days. It really did. It was a smelly, dark, horrible, poorly fed place. She must have been appalled when she first got off the boat in Leith. John Knox wrote a horrible thing about her, you know, saying basically there's, you know, there's clouds have come in upon us and then what, what's going to happen now? But she must have been feeling just as bad. But her other legacy is that she made very foolish choices um, in terms of the men that she got involved with, the people and the, the plots that eventually she got involved with, the fact that she was too trusting of her cousin Elizabeth. Uh, she really should have smelled the coffee. Um, and I think long-term, in some ways, she reinforced the idea that women shouldn't lead countries because they make such bad decisions. So I think in some ways she was bad for the, the image of women as... That's interesting. Um, she embedded that in our perception. Well, I, I wonder. I'm just hypothesizing, but yeah, yeah. I wonder about that. Uh, so. Was she the author of her own misfortune? Yes, I think to a, to a large extent she was actually. There were things she need not have done. She could have married better. She could not have um, colluded with the people. She, you know, Bothwell was a dreadful, dreadful um, mistake. Uh, whether she was raped or not, you know, it's a moot point. But you know, the, the company that she kept was really bad for somebody in her position. And I think she'd been spoiled when she was younger. I don't think she realised how serious Scotland was. I don't think she had a feeling for the country. She'd not been there since she was a few days old, really. Mm. And I think she miscalculated it. And it was compared with France, where she was brought up. You know, this was a very violent, dark, difficult, torn country. Not, not a nice place. And France, of course, was no, wasn't paradise. But it was much more sophisticated. She and she had a horrible life, basically, didn't she? From pillar to post at the mercy of all sorts of fates and winds blowing that she couldn't control. Absolutely. And one thing I think is very impressive about it, she was imprisoned for 19 years, and she didn't really complain. You know, she was extraordinary. You know, to that extent, she wasn't very Scottish at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
She died bravely. Yeah, Mary extraordinarily Scots, courageous. Yeah. I think her faith was a very big part. I mean, she was Catholic, a devout Catholic, refused to recant that even right at the end, in the day that she was being executed, they wanted to make her say, I, I forgo my Catholic faith and all of that. She would have none of it. And her faith was very, very strong. She believed that there was a better life waiting for her. And, um, well, I hope she was right. You know, mm. But when she was on the scaffold, or the block, I mean, the courage that takes. Mm. You know, and I know, you do think about it when you read it. Don't you? Oh, don't yeah. You? It's, a, it's a terrific account. And it's a great account, yeah. Yes. In your book, it's a terrific account. Yes. Um, all right. Seeing as he's had a movie made about him, William Wallace. Ah, William Wallace. And yes. speaking of brutal death, too. Oh, I know. I mean, it's on, honestly, it's our special subject, our specialist subject. <laughs> <laughs> the ways to kill people. Yes, William Wallace... Um, what can I say? I mean, he really, he still, even amongst those of us who read history, still has a kind of iconic place in people's hearts. I don't think they really always read the actual history around him. Mm. Um, but the way he died has made him a, you know, a martyr forever, and he's right up there. But you see, I don't think of him, when you say among the greatest Scots, I don't think of him, interestingly. Okay, um, do you think of Robert the Bruce? Yes, I would think of Robert the Bruce more so. Because we have yes. a town of Bannockburn. In New yes, Zealand, you do. And it, do you not have a wine, a Bannockburn wine? Uh, we have Sam Neill's near Bannockburn, isn't he? Oh, I thought. You know the famous actor. I think he's in the Bannockburn vicinity. Sam Neill, which who's he? I don't know if there's a Bannockburn wine. I thought there's a. <laughs> yes, there appears to be a wine, roughly named Bannockburn. <laughs> uh, okay, so would you put this is the. Um, because Robert the Bruce is associated. Would this be the of all the sayings of Scotland? Yes. Would this be right up there? Freedom. Ah, freedom is a noble thing. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because he's associated with that. Yes, isn't he? absolutely. And what was really great about Robert the Bruce, and there were, I mean, there were many tremendous things about him. Not least the devotion that he inspired amongst noble women around him who helped him, you know, get get to where he got. But he really wanted Scotland to to sever its ties with, if you like, an oppressive. English authority, even though he was brought up largely at the English court. It's, very, it's really complicated, all this history, because basically the, the royalty were hand in glove with each other the whole time. It was, it was like friends who then suddenly would stand back and say, right, I'm going to fight you to the death. You know, and the ordinary people just had to see which way the, the cards sort of fell. Yeah. But I think, he, I think he changed the face of Scotland forever. He made us um, a nation, a coherent nation. He didn't manage to pull all of Scotland together. There were tricky bits in Gaeldom. I mean, it's still tricky in Gaeldom, um, who could not be subdued or brought under authority. But that's what's great about the Gaels, because they also have a, a sense of independence within an independent country. Yeah, he's, he's one of the greats, I think. He was probably pretty cutthroat, though, wasn't he? Oh, yes. You get that impression in your book. How could you not be, you know, I mean, you think yourself, if you were governing a country, if you were governing in, in a time when people could be hung, drawn, and quartered, when if somebody's a traitor, it actually means that, you know, your entire city will be razed and done in flames. Actually, it would make you pretty tough, I think. Yeah. Times were tough. We, we all know about the Irish diaspora, but Robbie Burns... Um, planned to emigrate to the West Indies. I discovered while reading Scotland, the autobiography, he was, he was nay over fond of Scotland for a while. And of yes. course, the Highlanders left as well. Yes. That's a, another feature of Scottish history. We kind of accept that Scots moved, but we don't think of the huge impulse that we do with the Irish. 
And yet it was similar, wasn't it? It was, and in some ways, it's interesting because although there was the, the diaspora that came out of the clearances, so you know people were absolutely no option but to, to find another life somewhere better, there was a great deal of emigration. Obviously, you know much more about this than I do in terms of New Zealand, um, which was actually for a better life for people who could still survive and do perfectly well in Scotland. So in some ways, compared with the Irish, I think a lot of the emigrants came with money in their pocket and with skills that they were looking forward to, to doing and with a plan, mm. I think. And that's possibly why they've been disproportionately influential in the countries they've landed in. But it's interesting with Robert Burns. I mean, f firstly, he was escaping, you know, fatherhood, unwanted fatherhood. You know, he was reviled because of um, the number of illegitimate children he was having. And it was only the fact that his uh, poems suddenly made a name that he didn't go to work on a, on a I think it was a sugar plantation yeah. he was heading for. Now, the thought of, if you think of his great poem against slavery, and yet the fact that he was heading off to a plantation, it sort of epitomizes that whole period where you know, people could be entirely hypocritical and not be aware of it. And we're probably the same today, yeah. know, unaware of it. Yeah, we are. You know? well, I contain multitudes, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. Yeah. There's also a nice little account of uh, Walter Scott a young Walter Scott meeting him, isn't there? Yes. I mean, that wouldn't you have paid to just yeah. be in the room? With Robbie Burns? Point? Yes, absolutely. And Burns not aware of, of what Scott was going to become. Um, and Scott being the kind of man he was, I think, much more reverential towards Burns than I think Burns would have been had it been the other way around. Because I think even at 11 or something, Burns would have had quite a strong sense of self-confidence. And Burns seems to have come across to Walter Scott as a kind of slightly stolid, thoughtful, uh, farming type. That was the image he gave Scott. In other words, a very down-to-earth yes. character. Yes, also that's partly because of the way he spoke. I think he would speak in his Ayrshire brogue, uh, and whereas Scott would have been brought up in the much more refined kind of Edinburgh thing, uh, you know, language. So Scott, immediately, if somebody speaks like that, you put them in a different category. Uh, and I don't think he was particularly dressy. I think no. he was quite a plain dresser. And yet we associate him somehow with a kind of wild romance. and, and Byronic almost, isn't he? You yeah. think of him like Byronic, Byron. yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think he's better at taking his clothes off than choosing good clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the quote of the day. <laughs> so we had Arthur Conan Doyle, we had Alexander Graham Bell, John Logie Baird, Robert Louis Stevenson. They all get a look in. J.M. Barry, Kenneth Graham, Eric Liddell, who, when he ran, he felt God's pleasure, as we knew from that movie, actually, yes, didn't we? Yes, Chariots of yes. Fire. I, that's how I think of him, actually. Yeah, me too. Movie. I always did. Yes. That phrase always comes yes. to mind. Yes. Uh, Sean Connery, Billy Connolly, Dolly the Sheep. <laughs> who is more important? Well, I think it's the sheep, isn't it? It's a fairly astonishing list. Yes, isn't yes, it? It's it an is. astonishing list from a small country, as we said before, the overachieving country. Yeah. When you just read out all those names together, you think, my God. I mean, I don't need to ask you again why, because you've kind of answered it, but it's still pretty impressive. Well, what's interesting there is you, you, there's three names there. The, um, if you think Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, and you think John Logie Baird inventing the television, and you think of Dolly the Sheep, it was a group effort, but it's Ian Wilmot, Professor Ian Wilmot at the Rosalind Institute is the person whose autobiography I've taken that moment out of when they realised what they had done. And those three things really have totally shaped the way all of us now live. 
Yeah, you know, exactly. They have revolutionized. Yeah. The world. Now, somebody else would have come along with a different kind of television, no doubt, or or um, the, you know, the DNA and the, all of that would have been worked out. But it happened in Scotland first. It happened in Scotland best. And I can't explain that either. And I don't... I'm By temperament, I'm the sort of person that doesn't like to say, oh, I'm actually quite good at that. Well, I'm not anyway. But you're never going to say, oh, I'm really good at this. So I don't like saying, my goodness, Scotland, isn't it fantastic? But the evidence of these kind of people makes you think... Mm. Maybe we are. Yeah, I think maybe you are. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the beauties of your book is that you get glimpses, like Alexander Graham Bell got a sound response from an empty electric coil. And I've never quite known how he invented the telephone because I've never been, I've been you know, admiring, but never really been interested in finding out ex- the, the nuts and bolts, excuse the pun. Yes. But that's how he did it. Yes. He got a sound response from an empty coil, and that led... One thing led to the other. Now, if you or I had got a sound response, we would have thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Put it in a drawer. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, it's interesting that. Uh, Andy Murray. Now, you seem to be a fan of Andy Murray. Do we, do we think and, Andy Murray is a truly great tennis player? There you go. No. Mixed no. response, I would yeah, describe totally, that as. Yeah, totally mixed response there. But the Scots do. And well, you do, I think. I, I think he's fantastic. If I could play tennis like that, then I would be saying, I'm, you know, bring it on. Um, I think, uh, you see, it's really interesting. We don't win tremendously many um, sporting uh, cups or prizes in Scotland. We're pretty rubbish at sport, by and large. And Andy Murray, you know, managing to win Wimbledon at this intensely English competition, where suddenly he becomes British when he wins, but he's Scottish every time he loses. <laughs> you know, you know. For us, this is something. And also, Andy Murray is associated with Dunblane, um, where a lot of my family were. Uh, and you know, he was in the school when there was a terrible shooting. And I think there was a sense of he changed the image of Dunblane because he he brought something tremendously positive. He reminded people that actually it was a, a fantastic town. It was really resilient. It wasn't defined by this dreadful day. You know, he was That's in the school at the time when that happened, as was my nephew and niece. And um, he prevailed. He'll talk about it, but he doesn't dwell on it. It's not something that's formed him, but it's in the back of his mm. mind. And so he's transformed Dumblain. And he's also put a lot of money back into the country in what he's doing. So I frankly have no bad word for him and hope that his back injury recovers in time for July. <laughs> he doesn't have a tax haven in Belgium or somewhere. No, that's, that's, that's a great virtue in itself, actually. These days. Does he not? I really couldn't tell no, you. I don't well, think he I'm does. Just assuming been, he doesn't. No, because you're describing uh, it so nicely. <laughs> yes. um, the Scots were also the inventors of. Is this right? I mean, this is what I took from the book. They were the inventors of beds you pull out from walls and then fold back into cupboards. <laughs> and that was a long time ago they were doing this. Yes, absolutely. In the Middle Ages. It was, it was um, you know, these lovely Scandinavian books of how to live in a small apartment, you know, whether it's in New York or whatever. Well, we had that ages ago. It would be in the kitchen, by the way. It's just a little recess, um, and you would pull a cover over it, and it would be big enough for two, but about nine people would sleep in it. <laughs> Harry Lauder. Uh, oh, I don't know if everybody in the room will remember the name. But if it, Far too young. Uh, clearly. Some of them do. I'd, well, I, I would have known. Uh, a famous name in entertainment. And when I was reading his story, his account, it, it, it really confirms the old adage, and this is why it's important in your book, if at first you don't succeed. Yes, yes. We hear it all the time. 
but he personifies that, doesn't he? Yes, he is, he's a really interesting case because you feel he was irrepressible, but actually nobody is irrepressible. You, you make yourself irrepressible. You create your own spirit, I think. Ah. And he's, you know, he just, you know, he didn't do particularly well initially. He had to travel away from home. Um, people laughed at him often. Mm. And yet he is now, you know, the streets are named after him. There's nobody in Edinburgh won't know who he is. Uh, and I really like the fact that he kind of didn't take, he just wouldn't accept rejection. And I think that, you notice that in the biographies, one of the reasons I like reading biographies is for the early years of anybody. I never find the later bit, once they've achieved what they've achieved, quite as interesting. I love the bit that describes how they became who they are and why they kept going, what it was that kept them going. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's a negative thing that, you know, if you don't make a success at what you're doing, then you're facing destitution or you have to go back and live in, you know, in Edinburgh, Glasgow or Auckland or whatever it is. But um, there's something about just deciding you will carry on even if you're feeling terrible. Yeah. I don't See, know. We know about J.K. Rowling's turndowns, for example, yes. while she wrote in the Little Edinburgh bookshop, uh, which I went to, but it's very stuffy and hot. It is, isn't um, it? Yes. Uh, but Harry Lauder, if you get a chance to read it in the book, it just struck me. Never give up. Mm -hmm. If you want something, mm -hmm. just don't take no for an answer. Uh, you write very entertainingly of Donald Trump's little piece of Scotland. Oh, Donald Trump. Yes. Oh, isn't it great to know his mother is Scottish? <laughs> it's all our fault. <laughs> well, he does embody all the great virtues of the Scots in a contemporary setting, doesn't he? Now, <laughs> but there was such mistrust of what he was going to do when he bought that land. Yes. This is an account in the book from just humble local people. Yes. Um, and how's that panned out in the end? Well, it was very interesting. The story is that he bought um, a, a large swathe of land um, on the northeast coast, uh, quite in Aberdeenshire. Uh, it was the Many Estate, but it was also a, a site of special scientific interest, if I've got the right triple SAI, uh, because it was a fantastic dune culture, dune ecosystem, and there was a great outcry. They felt that the government should not have allowed him to buy this. So then initially it was controversial, and there was a feeling that the government, the SNP government, had really kowtowed to him because of his money. This was long before he ever thought of running for president. But there's a, there's a tremendous story. I just love this. It is so Scottish. There was a man, he basically, Trump bought up all this land, um, but there was a man who lived with his mother in the middle of the area that he wanted for his golf course and his huge hotel complex and all of this. He was going to make Northeast Scotland great again. Um, <laughs> but there's this man with his mother in a bit of a rubbish house, you know, the kind of house you wouldn't want to live next to with the rusting caravans and the old bits of car in the garden and so on. And he refused to sell. And Trump's men, well, people, probably men, did their best to intimidate him out, really, or pay him out, and then everything. And this man refused. So the piece in the book is a is a is a, an account an account of that little um, sort of David and Goliath situation. I have to say that the man who stood up to him, I wouldn't want to cross. You know, I mean, he is Scottish with bells on. <laughs> um, but what's happening now is that you know, there, there was then the worry. Trump got very angry because there were proposals to have an um, offshore wind farm uh, off coast. And he was extremely angry about this and got in touch with uh, the then First Minister, Alex Salmond, because it was going to spoil the view from his hotel. Um, and at the moment, it's not doing nearly as well as it ought to be. It's dreadful. Speaking of Scottish... No, that's a pity. <laughs> Speaking of Scottish fierceness, there was that abbess 
from the monastery whose name I forget. Oh, Eber. Who thwarted, Eber. Yes. Eber. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who thwarted the Vikings, but had to go to the nth degree to do it. Shall I tell the story? Are you strong of the stomach this You've, morning? Your breakfast is digested. It's a terrible story, and um, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. Um, I think you're talking about eight, eight, nine, three, roughly. Anyway, the ninth century. Uh, and there was this, there was this um, monastery, although it actually just became for nuns, in Coldingham, one of the most bleak parts of the, this, the Scottish coast, very near the English border. It's a fabulous place. The cliffs are just vertiginous. But the Vikings were working their way up through Scotland and across Scotland, and the abbess of the monastery realised that they would soon be at the doors. And the thing that I think frightened her more than the idea of being, any of them being killed was the idea of them being raped because it would have obviously broken their vows or it would have been completely against their religious sensibilities. So she gathered all the nuns together um, and said, right, they'll be here very soon, so I am going to do this and I suggest you follow suit. And so she took a knife and she cut off her nose and she cut off her top lip and all the others followed suit. It's an amazing story. And then when the Vikings got there the next day, they were so repulsed that, no, they didn't, they didn't come near them. They just set fire to the place and burned them all to death. That Horrible. is an astonishing story. Okay, I'll move on. <laughs> There's cheerier stories. You can just skip that one. I've got, um, I've got uh, we're getting near the end. Oh, so I, I'm, there are a couple of really important questions I need to get in. And the first one is, uh, is there a Loch Ness monster? <laughs> I'm sorry, there is no Loch Ness monster. Well, look, you read your book and there is persuasive account from a sober-minded witness. It's really interesting. Well, it, it is, and it is persuasive, but you have to use your common sense, I think, when it comes to Loch Ness monster. And every few years, there's another account of it, and people come up with new theories of what it is and whether this creature has... There's some kind of subterranean passageway out to the North Sea. And, yes. and frankly, it's just hokum. I think we should just enjoy Loch Ness as the most beautiful, beautiful loch, which my husband once was on a boat on. He was put in charge of it. Did he see um, the monster? He did not see the monster, but he nearly met God because um, when he was with his, his family, his first wife and their children, and when they, when they got to the pier to get the boat for their holiday... The person said, you'll be fine. You can, anybody who can drive a car can drive this boat. And Alan said, I can't <laughs> drive. <laughs> and he's out for a few hours on Loch Ness, which is a very, very big stretch of water, a very scary stretch of water. And he sees another boat coming towards him five times the size. And they collide. Uh, they collide? They collide, yes. Fortunately, it's just a scraping collide. His son is in the toilet of the boat trying to take cover. His wife is, I don't know what she's saying, but the fact he's got a second wife, perhaps... <laughs> suggests that things started going wrong there, you know? Awful. That's, that's scary. Yeah, so you would not want to go overboard and try and find the monster. No. And they could have been taken by the monster that day. That was... <laughs> you clearly believe in the monster. You want to believe in him. I just, I just believe what I read in your book. Now, um, <laughs> what would you regard as the proper recipe for haggis? That gets a mention. Yes. And it's often discussed, yes. even in New Zealand. Yes. Well, I think you need to use a sheep's um, bladder. Is it a sheep's bladder? It is, isn't it? Yeah. Or is it the stomach? Stomach. Stomach. See, I'm come from East Lothian. We're kind of big on bladders. You've East given Lothian. up haggis on the borders, haven't you? <laughs> no. That's but, um, and actually, I love haggis. I was vegetarian, passionate vegetarian for years, and then I slipped. You know, talk about being a, 
what's the ethical pygmy, um, and I actually love haggis. So, yes, there's a great deal of debate over it, and when the first vegetarian haggis was introduced, uh, people thought civilization had ended. I mean, this is, you know, it's an oxymoron. You can't have a vegetarian haggis. So, yeah, sorry, sheep's stomach, not bladder. All right. Um, there are the defining uh, disasters, not just the military disasters, which we've touched on, uh, as well as the triumphs um, and the triumphant inventors and so on. Uh, Lockerbie, you've mentioned that. The Royal Bank of Scotland collapse. There's Alastair Darling's account of that. Yes. Culloden and Bonnie Prince Charlie. Yes. Wow. Well, it's terrific reading. Um, why did, in the end, the Jacobite rebellion fail? Because I'm still not entirely clear about that. That's a very good question. I think there wasn't enough support, actually. What's often forgotten is the Jacobite Rebellion is seen as a romantic thing. It's seen often as another Scotland versus England, and it was nothing like that at all. It was some Scots versus some other Scots, and then the English, obviously, behind the Scots who were not for the Jacobites. It was a Catholic-Protestant thing in the end. Um, I think there were tremendously poor tactical decisions. I think Prince Charlie... Uh, was not a leader. I think he was a Sybarite. Um, I think he had a great romantic idea for Scotland. He wanted what he would have been like in charge. I don't like to think, actually. Mm. Um, and they had real problems when they marched down into England and into Derby. They timed things very badly. I mean, they had several, you know, goes at the at the bites at the apple, if you like. It started in the early 1700s. You know, 1745 was just the final culmination of decades of Jacobitism. Um, and people are still very sentimental about it. You know, you see the Outlander books, uh, the Diana Gabaldon stories. You know, everyone loves a Jacobite. Nobody likes anybody in a red coat. Well, yeah. the red coats were vicious, but then so were the Jacobites at times. Um, so I think actually they just didn't have clever enough heads on their shoulders and not quite enough support. The whole notion, I'll end on this if you like, the whole notion of that kind of blighted, nobly blighted, doomed in a sense country um, in, t in tandem with all the achievements and the glories that have been part of it. Is that over for Scotland, or is Scotland still that nation, do you think, deep down? Mm, I don't think we'll ever totally throw that over, but increasingly we're not thinking about our history, um, and we're not shaped by it because we're not taught it in quite the same way. And although on some levels I think history is not taught enough, I think there's no bad thing in kind of cutting cutting loose from really quite a dark and difficult past, remembering what you can from it if it can inform the future. But I think we need to look ahead. We need to, I think a lot of people, I think the SNP government and a lot of um, the younger generation are trying to think how to be Scots in the modern world now and not drag all of this often quite disreputable history with them. Quite yeah. how we do it, I don't know, but we need to find a way of, of, I mean, like New Zealand, New Zealand is a great example, you know, a small country, a small population, but doing things that the world is taking notice of. And mm. I think that's the way we should try and, and position ourselves, independent or not. I think Scots and Kiwis like each other. Yes, I think, I think there's so. an affinity, don't you? I definitely. I mean, honestly, um, my husband and I felt so at home when we when we landed. From the, I mean, we had such a warm welcome. The people in your hotels, cafes, on the street, just touch are so naturally and genuinely friendly. It's. Um, I find myself wondering, 
you know, Scotland's not as friendly as this. We're not bad, but we're not as nice as this. I love it. I, I really think it's a great credit to what it must be like to live in this country because people tend to be warm and friendly and generous when they enjoy where they are. Okay, nicely said. Well, your, you. your husband's um, doing a session upstairs as we speak, isn't he? Yes. So we're about to drown him out with the bagpipes. <laughs> and I tell you, that's a difficult feat. You are also... <laughs> <laughs> His voice rose above the bagpipes. <laughs> His voice. Yeah, you're also tomorrow uh, afternoon at three o'clock, yeah? Yes, that's right, yes. Yeah. I'd like to thank you for a fantastic session. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was excellent. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.